We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and is the manner of some, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. May the Lord bless this, his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before your presence this morning thanking you for this day in which you can, we can come to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this morning, dear Father, that you bless everyone that has come. Speak to their hearts and may your word become plain, real, and purposeful in each life, relevant. We pray this morning that you be with all of us here today that have come. We pray for those who are not able to be here today for whatever reason. We pray that you be with them wherever they are and minister their needs there. Uh, we want to pray this morning for Luis and Amanda. We thank you for the new addition in their family, for the baby. And we pray, Father, that you uh, continue to be with them. Thank you that everything went all right. We pray this morning that you be with those who are ill. We pray, Father, for those who are convalescent. Father, we lift them up to you this morning, and we praise you and thank you for the opportunity to be here today to worship you and to hear and listen to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. you may, may have heard, uh, Amanda and Luis are the happy parents of a new baby boy that was born this morning. His name is Lucas. So we thank the Lord that he's healthy, he's doing all right, and so is the mother. Uh, this morning, I would like you to look at your uh, outline that you received today of the message, and we're talking, uh, we finished the big section that we were in it for so long, uh, talking about the, the, the sacrifice, the better sacrifice, the better sanctuary, the better blood, the better covenant that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now we are entering a section beginning at verse 19, 
And this is an exhortation to a life of faith. Okay, having all the things that we have talked about before, now the writer uh, begins this section uh, with four exhortations to these Jewish believers based on the work of Christ the Messiah, which has been covered up to this point. They can rest on two bases of truth right here. First, The first one is that believers now have free access. As believers now, we have free access to enter into the very presence of God. And that's what verse 19 tells us. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter uh, the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Okay, we have boldness to enter. We don't have boldness to enter because we deserve it or because we have accomplished something. We have boldness to enter because he has accomplished everything. Okay, the word therefore means in light of of what has been said up to the point, this point in the epistle. So when you see the word therefore, when you're reading the Bible, and you see the word therefore, go back and find out why that's therefore. Okay? There is a purpose for everything. And here we see that uh, as believers, we have an entrance into the presence of God, and we need to exercise that privilege. I am very concerned about so many believers who have so many, all these privileges, and they're so careless in their walk with Christ, okay? Um, One day the Lord is going to require us all to give them an account of all the things that we have heard and all the things that we know, all that we say and all that we hear, and even all that we think, and that's kind of scary, isn't it? But I am afraid of those who willfully disobey the word of God. The fact that he says, therefore, brethren, the word brethren means that he's talking to believers. Now, some people think that he's talking to, uh, when he says brethren, he's talking to them as fellow citizens of the Hebrew race. That's not true because in other places, of the Bible where uh, it talks about brethren, none of the epistles is written to unbelievers. All the epistles were written to believers, whether Gentiles or Jews, it doesn't matter. So why is it so different for the Jewish believers as it is for those who are Gentile believers? Okay, so here this morning, brethren means he's talking to believers. They now have these believers' boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. And they are exhorted to enter not the earthly, but the heavenly holy of holies. Remember that the earthly holy of holies was still there. Okay, sacrifices were still, uh, you know, being carried on, uh, carried out. And uh, the temple had not been destroyed yet. So they had, the the, the, uh, because of persecution, the uh, temptation to go back to uh, Levitical or Rabbinical Judaism. Now, no Old Testament believer would have even thought, let alone dare, to enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. 
that would have been instant death. Even the priests could not enter the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest entered once a year and with blood. Nobody else could enter the Holy of Holies. Okay? The heavy veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies and thus separating the people from God. The death of Christ, what did it do? It tore the veil from top to bottom. This thick veil. Some people, you know, theologians, they tell us, historians, that it was about a foot thick. And it was squares that were all sewn together. And it took about 100 priests to hang it up when the temple was built or rebuilt. Okay? That veil, it was not a little transparent veil like the ones we know. It was a thick piece of fabric, and it was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, and uh, signifying that now they, he opened the way into the heavenly sanctuary into the very presence of God. This is the place the believers are exhorted to enter now and to do it boldly because the blood of Jesus makes it possible. He is our high priest. This means that believers today are on the same level as the Old Testament high priests. Not as the believers in the Old Testament, but as the high priests in the Old Testament. Because now as believers, we can enter the holiest of all anytime we want. And we don't need to do it with blood, because he already did it. Okay? Unlike those high priests, we need not fear to enter, but to do so with boldness and bring our petitions, needs, and cares personally to God because of the blood of Jesus. So here in verse 20, we see here that says, By a new and living way, okay, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Makes it very specific. The veil that was torn in the temple represented the body of Jesus that was torn on the cross. The believer can now enter by a new and living way, living way which he consecrated or dedicated okay, for us. The, the word new in the Greek means freshly slain or newly made, found only here in the New Testament. This is the only time that word is found, speaking of a freshness that can never grow old. So the freshness of the sacrifice of Jesus can never grow old. Okay? Uh, this way is new because it is based on the new covenant, which is based on better blood, the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Also, this way is a living way because the believer has a living fellowship with a living person, the Son of God. And this is new and living, uh, new and, 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 I'm sorry, this new and living way Jesus consecrated for us, shedding his own blood. His own death conquered spiritual death and brought life. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, he said. And he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He, uh, his words take on a more profound meaning 
in light of these verses. Okay? Why is he the way, the truth, and the life? Because it's through his death that we have life. We just sang it this morning. He is the life of my life, and he is the death of death. He killed death when he died on the cross. He was not conquered. He conquered. All right? So believers now have access to God through the veil that is his flesh. His flesh emphasizes his incarnation and true humanity. God does not die. <laughs> it is the man, Jesus, who died. Can we sit still? Everybody's getting up every two seconds. And it's very distracting. Once the service starts, I don't want anybody moving. Okay? Last warning. Next one, you get 30 lashes. It's very distracting when people move around all the time when I start preaching. I'm, saying, I'm confessing to you my sin this morning. And if I get distracted, you, you don't benefit from it. So these 45 minutes or so that we have, let's sit still. The bathroom can wait. Water can wait. Everything can wait. We need to just be still. Okay? If we're worshiping God. I'm sure that if the president, whoever he is, would be talking to you, you would not get up and walk out. Now, the pastor is always bad because he corrects people, so when he does it, he is the bad guy. But that's okay, I'll be the bad guy for your own good. As I said before, believers now have access to God through the veil that is his flesh. His flesh emphasizes his incarnation and true humanity. He had to become man in order to die because God does not die. He cannot die. Okay? Now you say, well, is there something God cannot do? Yep, God cannot die and God cannot lie. But that's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Because to be able to lie and to be able to die is a sign of weakness. So here we see that by the death of his humanity, now we have gained the right to enter this way. His body was like the veil, and the veil was torn. His body was torn on the cross just like the veil, and now the way is open to all who place their faith and trust in him. Have you placed your faith and trust in the Lord? If you have, then you have access. If you haven't, then you need to. Okay? And this is why they have access to God, and we all believers have access to God. Jesus fulfilled God's promise of the new covenant. And we talked about that in chapter 8, when we talked about the new covenant that he's quoting there from Jeremiah 31. Therefore now, we go to verse 21 of our text. And it says, And having a high priest over the house of God, having a high priest over the house of God, <clears throat> in this verse we have the second basis of truth. The first one was that we all have access into the holiest of all, right? 
This one is that believers have a sovereign high priest who is over the house of God. And this high priest is higher, of a higher order than the Old Testament priests. For he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. And he is over the heavenly house, and therefore over better things, because he is God's son. After pointing out, pointing out the two bases for, these, uh, for the exhortations, now the writer gives us four exhortations. The first one is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. It literally means to come towards. If I said to you this morning, come, draw near. You're coming towards me, right? Same thing. Let's come towards the Lord. In this case, towards God. Or draw near to God in the sense of worshiping him. Do you remember when it said there when the Lord Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? That one of the disciples was following afar off? Do you remember who, which disciple was that? No. Who followed him afar off? It was Peter. And that's how backsliding begins. First you begin to follow from a distance. You miss one search or service. You miss two. You miss three. And then you come, and then next time you miss four, you miss five. And before you know it, what do you do? You do what Peter did. He denied the Lord. That's called apostasy, which is a Greek word meaning distance. Now, do we, uh, are we faithful to God because we physically come to church every Sunday? Well, in a way, yes, but in another way, no. You don't come just with your body. You come with your soul and spirit, your mind and everything else to worship God. Make it a discipline in your life. Because you notice that some people come for the time and then they start slacking off. And before you know it, they stop coming to church altogether. And before you know it, they're in the world. And I always say that a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't need to be yanked, doesn't need to be pushed. He follows. What does the Lord say? My sheep hear my voice and they what? Follow me. Are you a sheep or a goat? Goats are independent. Have you ever seen a goat out in the mountains somewhere? I've seen them. Sheep are all, you know, going nice and meek. They're together there, the flock. And maybe you see the pastor, the shepherd there, sitting on a rock, and they're all around him. Goats are up in the mountains, and they stand, and they go like, they look like they're crazy. That's why they say crazy like a goat. Okay? And they don't have a shepherd. They're wild. That's why the Lord compared believers and unbelievers to sheep and goats. Now, I grant you there are some believers who act like goats, but don't be one of them, okay? It's easier to be a sheep. Um, 
it says, it liter literally means to come towards the Lord, in this case, toward Him, draw near to God in the sense of worshiping Him. The present tense emphasizes continuous action, but it's not just in the present tense, it is also an imperative, which means that we must keep on drawing near God. In other words, it's a commandment. Some people think it's an option to come to church and worship God. It's not an option, it's a commandment. We're going to see that in this verse, uh, in, the, in the couple of the verses that follow. Now, this is a call to move away from lukewarmness. Don't be a lukewarm Christian. Because the Lord talks to us in the book of Revelation about lukewarm Christians. They, 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 they nauseate him. He's going to spit him out of his mouth. He's going to throw them up. Did you ever drink lukewarm water? It's horrible, isn't it? I don't like my soup. How many of you like soup? I love, I love soup. I'm a soup nut. But I like my soup hot. I don't like when the soup is cold, and I don't care when it's lukewarm. If I'm in a restaurant, a diner, and they bring me the soup and it's lukewarm, I call the waiter back and say, take it back. I want hot soup. My soup, I like hot. My coffee, I like hot. My tea, I like hot. Other drinks, I can have cold, but those I want hot. Okay? So, and the Lord tells us to be either hot or cold, never be lukewarm. But if, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I'd rather be hot. Maybe because I'm a Greek and we have a, a, a hot temper. I'm only kidding. Well, what does it mean to be hot? It means to be fervent. It means to be dedicated, consecrated. How can we serve God half-heartedly? Doesn't the Bible tell us to be, to, to be single-minded when it comes to the Lord? Don't be double-minded. The Bible tells us in James that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Be single-minded when it comes to the Lord and anything that has to do with his kingdom. Move away from lukewarmness and come to God with a full heart. Doesn't it say, after all, the first commandment, that shall love the Lord thy God with all thy what? All thy heart? All thy strength? All thy might? All thy mind? Does that talk to you about lukewarmness or being hot or being cold? Which is it? Hot. The Lord does not appreciate half-heartedness and does not appreciate lukewarmness. So I'm not trying to say anything today except to encourage you, okay, to be on fire for the Lord. Look all he did for us. My goodness, when he went to the cross, did he do it half-heartedly or did he do it wholeheartedly? My goodness. And he doesn't ask us to die on the cross like he did. He doesn't ask us to die. He asks us to live for him. So if we're going to live for him, let's live with him, for him with all we've got. After all, all we are and all we have comes from him, doesn't it? We are his. Now, this word here is the same word used in 4.16 when he tells us to come before the throne of grace. And the purpose is to appropriate grace. 
We must come near to God with a true heart, it says. That is with loyalty and sincerity and in full assurance of faith, meaning with a mature faith, vigorous faith, full of assurance, doubting nothing. The believer lives by faith in what God has promised, for he is able to fulfill his promises. Can we trust God for everything? If you ever have an, uh, an opportunity to read the life of George Mueller, I'm doing that right now, rereading it, I should say. George Mueller was a faithful worker, servant of God. He was born in Germany, but he lived in England most of his life in Bristol. And he had a ministry, he had five orphanages five orphanages and he never asked for one dime from anybody even when people offered him money he refused it unless he was convinced that that was God sending that person he built a ministry based on asking God not man and out of the poverty that he had, he was able to feed hundreds upon hundreds of boys and girls. And they grew up to be, many of them, godly men and women. He was a man that was tried very, very sorely, but he was so faithful. He purposed in his heart to live a life of faith. And sometimes things Funds will be totally depleted in the ministry. And they didn't know when the next meal was going to come, was going to come from. As I remember one example, it said that they had nothing. They, sat, they didn't have anything to feed the orphans one day. And the workers came to him and they said, what are we going to do? He says, have them all sit down at the tables and let's pray. So they all sat down at the tables and they prayed. And right at that moment, the milkman was coming down the street and his cart broke. I mean, you know, back then, 1800s, one of the wheels broke, the axle, something happened. All the milk was going to go bad. So what did he do? Donated all the milk to the orphanage. So they had milk to give them. And that's just one example. At the age of 65, 70 years old, he began traveling all over the world. He came here to the States, New York, other, other states, from coast to coast. He died at the age of 90-something. He was tried, but he trusted God. He believed that God was going to supply every one of his needs, and not only to supply every one of his needs, but supply the right amount at the right time and when you read that book you're going to find out he supplied the right amount at the right time I can tell you that but I can also tell you my own testimony briefly when my father passed in 1985 was suddenly he died of a heart attack driving right here on the Brockna with my mom in the car. He had a massive heart attack, and he died immediately. 
He had never suffered from heart condition before. So I was away in Ocean Grove, New Jersey when that happened. And they came, my assistant came and uh, got me at two, midnight, 12 o'clock midnight from there and came back to New York. And when we made the arrangements for the wake, the funeral, the cemetery, I didn't have a dime on me. And my father didn't have a dime because he had been sick for 12 years. And everything he had, the doctors ate up. So I remember we're sitting there at the funeral home, making the arrangements. And my sister's husband says to me, where are we going to get the money from? I said, well, listen, your job is to drive trucks. My job is to trust the Lord. He's going to supply. And I remember back then, this is 1985, this is 37 years ago. The whole thing came out to about Oh, and on top of it, the cemeteries in New York were on strike. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to bury him in New Jersey. I'm not going to put him, first of all, I'm not going to put him in a Catholic cemetery. And number two, I'm not going to have him put him in a freezer and then have to do this thing all over again when the strike is over. So we buried, the guy gave me the, cha the choice of New Jersey, so I buried him in New Jersey at the George Washington Memorial Park. That's where my mom is buried too. And uh, the whole thing came to, if I remember the, the, the number correctly, it was about $4,721. Mind you, this is back in 1985. Gasoline then was 99 cents. And right there and then, my uncle, my mom's brother, without me knowing, took out a check and gave it to the guy at the funeral home, $2,000. And we never asked him for a dime. Well, we paid $2,000. Where does the 2721 come from? I never told anybody how much it was. Nobody knew except for my sister, my mom, and those two that were there with, uh, you know, four people in the funeral home. It was my, my brother-in-law, my, my uncle, my sister, and myself, and then my mom when we got home. Nobody else knew, and we never told anybody about it. And that night, they had service at the church, and of course, I didn't go. And without me knowing, they took an offering. I never asked for it. And when they counted the offering, I'll give you three guesses how much it was. First two guesses don't count. It was exactly $2,721. That was more meaningful to me than if it had been $10,000. Because the Lord supplied exactly what we needed. And you know what that does? Might be less money, but it increases your faith. You become richer in faith because you know there is a faithful God. His promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, are true. So having these promises, what are we supposed to do? 
we should be motivated to be more faithful to him with a whole heart because our Lord deserves that and more. Okay? We come to God with a true heart, with loyalty and sincerity and in full assurance of faith, with a mature faith, with a vigorous faith, full of assurance, doubting nothing. The believer, the believer lives by faith in what God has promised. Some people have faith in their own imaginations. Oh, I pray, then God is going to do it. No, 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 never have that attitude. Because God is not a waiter waiting for you to give him an order. Amen? He's the, he's the king. God is faithful to what he has promised in his word. Not in your wishes. Okay? So make sure that whatever you ask the Lord is based on a biblical principle. And uh, not only he has promised, but he's able to fulfill his promises. Now the means by which he drew, we draw near to God are having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Speaking of the believer's salvation... And that salvation brings us into a positional sanctification. You know what that means? It means that as far as our position is concerned before God, we are sa we're sanctified. We're holy. We're separated, which that's what the word sa uh, sa uh, saint or holy means. The same thing. Separated. Okay? That's positional. Okay? And here is using the imagery of blood. Because blood was sprinkled by Moses under the Mosaic Covenant. And it also look, looks at another feature of salvation. Not just our sanctification, but our justification. When we were declared righteous by faith. And now we are free from guilt. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.1. Being therefore justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that we have peace with God? Because we know that our, in our justification, the Lord declared us righteous. Not innocent, but righteous because of Jesus. And when you know God declares you righteous, what do you have in your heart? Peace. Why? Because guilt has been removed. Okay? And... Uh, we are righteous, declare righteous by faith, and now we are free from all that guilt. And this happened in the past, when they, fir they first believed. When we first believed, we were justified. Okay? And it continues to the pres in the present, for it is in the perfect tense, which you know, you heard me say many times, that's action completed in the past with effects continuing to this day. And this is our position, just like it was their position right now. Believers are justified and sanctified. Now, we also come to God with our bodies washed with pure water. The first was positional. We talked about positional sanctification, right? Now, this is practical sanctification. Practical sanctification is not our position any longer just the position it's what we do so we must be positionally sanctified and that can only happen by faith the moment we're saved it's like you having children now your children did not ask you to have them did they 
Some parents throw it in their faces. I had you. Well, they didn't ask you to be born. You had them. So it's your responsibility. See, kids, I'm on your side. And, and uh, that's that. They, the moment they're born, they're your sons or daughters positionally, right? But now as they grow, what, what do they need to do? They need to act like sons and daughters. Okay? Obeying, loving, all the other things that they need to do. And for us believers, it's the same thing. The Lord made us uh, uh, holy, sanctified us positionally. Now we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by living a life of righteousness. Now notice I say a life of righteousness, not, not a perfect life. Nobody lives a perfect life. But thank the Lord that when we fail, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. Okay? So here we, the Greek word here means, when it says washed, the Greek word for washed is to bathe. To bathe. And this cleansing is the result of the believer's regeneration. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing, same word, of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, great verse of scripture to give you assurance of salvation. Okay? And it is also in the perfect tense. The believer has been bathed and is still being bathed as well as sanctified. Jesus continues washing us throughout our earthly sojourn. The Old Testament priests were both sprinkled with blood and washed as they prepared for their priestly office. And this was a picture of the real thing. Now the second exhortation we find in verse 23. Look what it says there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is an exhortation of the hope that Jesus is the Messiah. Why do we trust him? Because he promises, his promises are all true, and because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. God is the one who keeps us safe, and his continuous cleansing is proof of eternal security. We're not saved by holding fast. Rather, holding fast is evidence that we are saved. Some people think, oh, if you persevere until the end, you shall be saved. When the Lord says that in Matthew, it's not talking about physical salvation, uh, spiritual salvation. He's talking about physical salvation. Okay? During the time of the tribulation. We are not saved because we persevere. But the fact we persevere, it's evidence that we are saved. Holding fast will keep the believer from wavering as he or she will be firm and unbending. That's why Paul says, not being tossed any longer to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Some people are so unstable because they never sit still in one place to learn or they don't go to a church that teaches the truth. Okay? Now, uh, the reason for holding fast is because God is faithful in his promises. 
He has promised to keep us saved. And our eternal security is safe because it depends on God, not us. Try people who say, oh, you can lose your salvation. That's because they're, they're, they're putting their trust on what they do. We need to put our trust in what Jesus has done and in who he is. Okay? And this will give us more boldness to trust him without wavering, giving proof or evidence of our salvation. And we shall look forward to the coming of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the Lord coming soon. The third exhortation in verse 24. It says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Consider. The writer exhorts us believers to consider. Okay? It means to make a very careful investigation or a careful study. In chapter 3, verse 1, it was used again, this word, and it referred to Christ. But here it refers to other believers. We are to consider others not to criticize or find fault, but to motivate to love and good works. We're so, so prone to criticize in others, aren't we? And we need to learn to pray for others and motivate them to love and good works. They both go together. Now, the first is internal and the, the second is external. Love is shown by action. That's why it says, for God so loved the world that he what? He what? Gave. God could have said, oh, I love you, and not done anything about it. And that w w where would have that left us? Nowhere. God demonstrated his love by sending his son and sacrificing his son's, his son for you and me. And that's why Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. God the Father showed his love by giving his only son, and we show our love to God by obeying his commandments, and we show our love to others by doing good works for them. Now, we stir up or stimulate one another unto love and good works. In these last three verses of the section that we're studying, we have the evidence of three great Christian virtues. Faith, in verse 22. Hope, in verse 23. And love in verse 24. Okay? And the fourth and last exhortation we have, we have in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is the fourth exhortation? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The Greek says, not abandoning completely the gathering of believers or the believers together and the assembly itself. The word for assembly consists of the word synagogue, okay? But it simply means the assembly, the gathering of those gathered together. The only other time the word is used is in 2 Thessalonians 2.1 where it speaks about the gathering together of believers when Jesus comes. The church must meet as often as possible, for we are commanded to do so. Those who neglect this are in disobedience to God's commandments. 
Sadly enough, some people disassociate themselves from the, their church, as these Jewish believers were doing. These were under persecution, but a lot of believers have no reason for it. It can be carelessness, indolence, apathy, even outright rebellion and disobedience to God's command. We as believers must gather together for the purpose of exhorting one another. Getting together is vital for encouragement and exhortation in the body of Christ. Now to practice the first three exhortations, but also in view of the coming judgment. The writer says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. We see here the urgency we must have in doing this. What is the reason for the urgency? The day is approaching. This speaks of the coming judgment, which is imminent. In the case of these Jewish believers that the writer is writing to, they were very near to the judgment. They were, the, judgment the judgment was nearer than they imagined. Okay? And that judgment came in 70 A.D. When Rome came in, destroyed the nation, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, massacred thousands upon thousands of Jewish people, and the rest they scattered throughout the empire. And that's the Lord allowed and destroyed it due to Israel's national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And he told that to the disciples in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 24 and in Luke 19 and 21. He prophesied that judgment was coming and it came. And that judgment is an illustration of the final judgment that the present generation is going to experience and probably sooner than we think. The judge is at the door, and the writer exhorts the believers to be faithful. And the Lord himself said it. When the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find any faithfulness? How many will be faithful when he comes back? Will he find you faithful? What will you tell him? when he comes back? Or what will he say to you? Make sure you're faithful. We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the Word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash CBT hyphen sermons.